0: When you look at Silicon Valley, as much as it's an incredible ecosystem, people realize now that they can come down to Southern California, have a better quality of life, and still build great companies. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road.
1: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
2: There really is no place like home.
1: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole?
2: Adam Strzok is an up-and-coming venture capitalist. The name may not be familiar, but he's made solid investments in Nutanix, Postmates, and a fascinating new company we'll get to in a moment called Mythical. So the Strzok name may not be familiar to you yet, but it's well-known in South Africa. Adam's grandfather found his fortune there after fleeing
0: the Holocaust. Here's Adam. I remember at a very young age, you know, just asking my parents, how did we arrive here? Um, and it actually goes back to my grandparents. Uh, my grandparents were all Jews in Eastern Europe, uh, you know, mainly like Lithuania. Uh, so it's that, that real story of sort of, you're eating dinner one day, the next thing you know, you know, Nazi troops are in your house, they, they rip you away from your family, you're put on a train, um, you know, you never see your, your, fa- your father and your brother. Um, you know, again, your uh, younger sister immediately gets killed because she's too young. Um, on my uh, on my dad's side, my grandfather um, he actually had like twelve brothers and sisters. Um, he they were all killed um, in, in uh, literally like marched into the forest and shot. He was able to escape, got on a boat um, to South Africa. He then was literally apparently like selling snacks on the mine for like two years and he saved up enough money to buy a piece of land, and that land um, ended up having mineral rights, and uh, he then used that to start a, a very flourishing business uh, called National Manganese Mines. Um, so yeah, r- really interesting story, you know, in- incredible adversity, um, but but a lot of triumph at the end.
2: It is interesting that a family that is fleeing intolerance ends up in South Africa.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, from his perspective, there weren't really many other options. It was not easy for Jews uh, to get into America. And uh, I think he just saw South Africa as a, as a land with rich mineral resources and a place of opportunity. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, he, there wasn't much of a choice. So he just went with what he went with. Um, but, you know, I think Jews... Uh, you know, really do understand, um, you know, just sort of, you know, the the, the horrific atrocities that African-Americans have gone through because, you know, in the Old Testament, Jews themselves were slaves. And, uh, you know, I know that my family never agreed uh, with apartheid. um, But at the end of the day, I think a lot of European countries have have had very bad histories there. You know, he could have, uh, he could have not gone to South Africa to America, but America clearly has its own issues, uh, you know, as it relates to racial tension.
2: This idea of being an immigrant with very little money—in the case of your grandfather, just enough to sell snacks—and and and turn that into a fortune—he does that in South Africa. But that's that is also a very American story. Uh, one of the investments you have is in Nutanix. Uh, I've talked to the CEO Darash Pandey several times. He came to America with eight hundred dollars. He creates Nutanix.
0: Well, I came here with $800 and I started the company uh, in 2009.
2: So the company is barely eight years old. I love that story, both because it makes me proud to be an American, but also there's a certain sense of wonderment on my side because as as an American native, I I often think the story we tell immigrants of come to the new world, you know, with a few dollars in your pocket and find your fortune is just a story and then people do it. And turn $800 into billions.
0: Yeah, no, you're, you're 100% right. And uh, Nutanix is an incredible investment um, that I was very lucky enough to be a part of. And uh, he obviously achieved tremendous success with that. Um, I, I remember, um, you know, being an insider in Nutanix and literally days before the IPO, the company got an all-cash acquisition offer from Cisco for $5 billion dollars. Um, I really wanted them to take that because uh, I wouldn't have had to wait uh, 180 days uh, for the lockup period to expire as an insider. But, you know, Duraj sort of just being true to his, his original form, right? He chose not to take it because he wanted to take the company public and he wanted to be in charge of the narrative going forward. Um, and I think that that ability to sort of understand that, you know, I, I'm OK with nothing and I feel great you know, having a lot, but it doesn't change who I am. And it, it really allows you to channel that entrepreneurial spirit and take big risks.
2: There is a trust that you put in Raj because, you know, that idea that, hey, by the way, I turned down $5 billion and we're just going to, you know, we're going to take it public and see where it goes. Um, I am, you know, I'm just not that. I'm very conservative. I do the 30 year fixed mortgage, even though the banker says, Are you insane? I mean, look at this, you know, look uh-huh. at this this variable rate. This would be much better. I'm like, no, I'm gonna go with what I know. So yeah, you get that phone call where it's like we we turned down a five billion dollar acquisition offer and and I would imagine anyone would go, Wait, how how much? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you're you're hundred percent right. Um, and I actually remember I think, you know, right after Nutanix IPO'd. Um, the price really shot up and it was greater than a $5 billion market cap. And I said, wow, you know, I think Deraj really knows what he's doing. But post lockup, it was actually below $5 billion. But, you know, either way, I think as a venture capitalist, you have to defer to the cadence of the founders. And, um, you know, Nutanix is just such an incredible su- success story. I understand why uh, maybe he didn't want to join sort of one of the largest legacy incumbents like Cisco. You know, maybe you lose your identity as a company. Uh, but generally, yeah, you know, it's uh, we, we're minority investors. We we definitely have to defer uh, to the founders. And he clearly made the
2: right decision. Definitely. <laughs> so the reason you're able to invest uh, in part is because you were able to create your own fortune and you know you come from a family in which the family name is known in South Africa. You grow up comfortably. Uh this is a recipe sometimes for disaster. Uh to be the grandchild of a, you know, someone who owns a, a magn magn I can't even say that. Magnanese mine. Yep, manganese. Um, yep. Right. Thank you. That kind of mind. Um There's a recipe there or a potential for disaster. Uh, and yet you are able to and it, you grew up, you know, with with some pit roads paved for you. But you are able to create your own way. And tell me about that.
0: Yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, definitely, you know, grew up, you know, quote unquote privileged. But I think I realized from a at a very young age that, you know, whatever wealth, you know, my family had, call it maybe in the 70s or whatever, you know, at the time, the rand was equal to the dollar. Now, due to inflation in South Africa, it's around 14 rand uh, to the dollar. And then you divide that up, you know, between my my father and his brothers and sisters, you realize that, you know, maybe you have a good name and maybe you're comfortable, but it's nowhere near the sort of American wealth um, that I've grown up to actually see, um, especially being in in venture capital. Um, So I think I knew from a very young age that, you know, I've I've got great entrepreneurs fiber and, uh, you know, grandfathers that have accomplished a lot, grandmothers that have accomplished a lot. Um, But I knew that if I really wanted to sort of give my children what maybe my father grew up with, you know, I I would really have to work. And uh, I've never had a problem with that. I've always said sort of adversity is the stone upon which I sharpen my sword and I'm, I'm happy to take risks. So, you know, after Northwestern University, I went straight to Georgetown Law Um, I then actually was an M&A private equity attorney at at, uh, Kirkland and Ellis in the New York Corporate Practice Group, but I really quickly realized that I was sort of on the wrong side of the proverbial fence. I really wanted to be an entrepreneur, a founder, you know, the one scoring the goals, not just making sure that the scoreboard is written up correctly. Um, So uh, my brother, who's actually seven years older than me and very entrepreneurial, um, was starting a company called Long Island Brand Beverages. And uh, I chose to leave Kirkland and Ellis and join him um, as a co-founder and board member. Um, I remember my mother crying Uh, because I was her good, uh, you know, lawyer's son and and leaving to go take big risks. But, you know, it really was for the best. And, uh, you know, with respect to Long Island brand beverages, we, uh, you know, it was a difficult road. Uh, We wanted to initially go out. We were really inspired by Bethany Frankel and and the Skinny Girl Margarita concept, a sort of very premium ready to drink, um, you know, uh, sort of alcoholic product. Um, you know, she ended up selling that to Jim Beam. It was a great success story. We wanted to do the same thing with Long Island Iced Tea because we didn't think that there was anyone really owning that brand. Um, but, you know, what we realized really quickly was the uh, the slotting fees, you know, were sort of killing our margins. And we actually had an opportunity to get into a bunch of vending machines. Um, but the caveat um, in order to actually be in the vending machines and give us scale that would allow us to, you know, increase our margins and deal with these, these, these difficult slotting fees is the caveat was that we uh, couldn't be alcoholic because you can't put alcoholic drinks in vending machines. Which is,
2: which is, like what a Long Island Iced Tea is like—pure, it's, it's practically like, pure alcohol <laughs> exactly. with a dollop of Coke in it. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So we uh, we actually ended up realizing that there was such an incredible grassroots affinity just for the name and the brand Long Island Iced Tea. And when we did uh, a bunch of sort of um, you know just sort of sort of uh, testing on, on the iced tea market generally, we realized that at the time Arizona Iced Tea um, you know was sort of the they controlled the market and then. In Arizona I see it was like 60 grams of high fructose corn syrup so we felt that you know if we could come to market with an organic um, iced tea that used cane sugar instead of high-fructose corn syrup, used things like reverse osmosis filtration to preserve the integrity of the of the tea leaf, um, and could really sort of benefit from uh, you know maybe the lower customer acquisition costs that would come along the eastern corridor because people had such an affinity to the grassroots association with Long Island iced tea, we thought we could actually be successful. Um, so we took a really big risk and uh, we actually ended up scaling that company um, to 7,800 mom and pops. Um, we bootstrapped it to over 40 million million dollars in top line. Um, we ended up selling it to a middle market private equity firm called Cullen Investments, um, and they actually combined the company with a few other assets and for a short period of time took it public on the NASDAQ. Um, so it was a really incredible story. Um, my brother then went right into another company called Hungry Root, um, which is raised You know, maybe 50 million to date, uh, including a a big round of capital from Lightspeed Venture Partners. He has Jeremy Liu, one of the most prolific VCs in the world on his board. Um, I went a different direction and I was kind of tired of low margin uh, commoditized CPG products. Uh, My brother still loves that. Um, I'm much more of a software guy. And I just thought that venture capital would be a really incredible way for me to combine my legal and operational expertise and really help young founders, you know, sort of give them that first round of institutional capital and then get them to a point that they can quote unquote graduate to the Andreasens, the Lightspeed's, the Sequoia's of the world. And that's what we're doing day in, day out. And, uh, you know, couldn't be happier.
2: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
1: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay
2: here forever.
1: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: (sighs) That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget mm, mm, mm. visit carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. convenient, comfortable ah.
2: Now you say you you're a software investor but you're not in Silicon Valley you chose to base in LA why is that?
0: Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think Silicon Valley right now is a little bit overrated, um, you know, especially now in, in the sort of post-COVID world and, you know, there's such incredible remote um, software out there. You can really start a business from anywhere. Um, I think when I when I went, uh, we were in uh, Manhattan, New York. Uh, my wife and I had done 10 freezing winters between Northwestern and Georgetown Law and then New York. And, you know, we had some family here in L.A. And we said, you know, why don't we just, again, take a risk, you know, we got an Airbnb in the Hollywood Hills and uh, we ended up just absolutely falling in love with Los Angeles. And I think what I realized in a very short period of time is there's just such an incredible ecosystem here. Um, yes, you know, Google and Facebook were not built here, but, um, you know, Snapchat is incredible. Honest Company is incredible. You know, you've got uh, Service Titan, Cornerstone. There's so many sort of large software companies um, that have put themselves in a situation that, you know, sort of employees zero to, you know, maybe one to two to 100, you know, they their shares fully vest. They get acquisitions. They go, you know, go through IPOs, et cetera. And these people want to continue building in Los Angeles. And I think when you look at Silicon Valley, as much as it's an incredible ecosystem, um, you know, the culture is very monolithic. It's extremely expensive. Um, and I think people realize now that they can come down to Southern California, have a bit more, you know, better quality of life and still build great companies. And, you know, I've really had the privilege of of seeing, um, you know, a lot of the venture funds that have come up um, in Southern California. You now have these really large growth stage venture funds like Anthos and March Capital and 3L, um, you know, and, and these these are funds that have raised hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and their sole purpose is to really sort of back that VC ecosystem in LA as they hit that growth stage um, of their life cycle. Um, So, you know, for me as a seed stage investor, knowing that, you know, we have access to, you know, incredible companies, incredible talent, the UC um, sort of engineering system is, is top of the charts. Um, and knowing that the capital is here in l a um, you know there 's no reason not to build here and I, I think uh, if you 're investing today as to where you think the world 's going to be in ten years, we truly believe that l a will be able to be pound for pound you know go pound for pound with Silicon Valley, and you know we want to be a huge part of the seed infrastructure um, as it relates to Los Angeles
2: You originally made that ten year prediction a couple of years ago uh, in a magazine article. I think coronavirus, as you had touched on really accelerates that because all of a sudden, not only are we realizing we can work remotely, but we're realizing that through Zoom and whatnot, some of this stuff does not necessarily need to be person to person, at least not now. Maybe it'll come back and everyone will insist on that. But it it does seem to have changed the entire ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, we uh, we recently hosted a webinar um, a few weeks ago called Remote Fundraising, Perspectives from All Sides of the Deal Table. And we were lucky enough to have uh, Amit Mukherjee, a partner at NEA, you know, one of the largest VC firms in the world, join us on that webinar. And, you know, what we all were sort of speaking about generally is th- it's actually a very exciting time right now to sort of back first principle thinkers at opportunistic terms who really sort of understand um, how that the world is changing and, and, and they can adapt to it faster. And that creates a sort of uh, level of arbitrage. You know, what I will say generally is we spend a lot of time at Struck Capital, you know, trying to sort of predict where we think the world's going to go. and we, do, we want that to really impact our investment thesis. Um, but what we what we don't want to do is sort of over-index um, to some of these macro trends. Um, you know, we're, we're finding that some VCs are, they think they'll never be commercial real estate again. Uh, you know, if it's... And telemedicine, telemedicine, telemedicine. Yeah, telemedicine. exactly. And, yes. then they, and they want to give crazy valuations to companies with no traction. We don't want to do that. I think sort of the conclusion that we have garnered is... If there was already a sort of macro change that had velocity, um, it's very possible and plausible that sort of COVID is something that has dramatically increased that velocity. So when you look at things like um, the, the gradual shift of 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 uh, commerce moving from brick and mortar to online, um, you know, that's now something that a trend was that trend was already there. But now we think the velocity of that has dramatically increased, you know, and that's why, for example, we, we made a recent investment in a company called Black Cart that sort of removes all risk associated with. Um, you know, with, with essentially buying, uh, you know, sort of, they're starting off in fashion, but it removes all risk with sort of getting those, those clothes to your house to try and for fit and then sending them back. It's basically a try before you buy option without forcing you to pay anything. So, um, you know, those types of, of investments are, are very interesting because they, they're, they're sort of counter cyclical and they're they're receiving increased momentum as a byproduct of COVID. Um, but we do get leery, you know, when we hear VCs sort of saying they'll never be office space again. Um, you know, if it's if it's built on a Zoom API, it deserves a 30 million dollar pre-money valuation. You know, we still want to just back incredible founders and we want businesses that theoretically would work, you know, in a post-COVID world or a pre-COVID world.
2: One of the investments you've made that I don't quite understand is mythical games. And, you know, I'm a gamer. I grew up with Atari. I have an Xbox in my house. house. So I understand games, but I don't understand what you're doing with mythical games.
0: Yeah, Mythical Games is really an incredible investment. So we led the seed round of that. They've raised $38 million uh, to date since then. They're based in Los Angeles. And uh, the two founders, uh, John and Jamie, were both former Activision studio heads and were responsible for games like Guitar Hero, um, you know, and, and Call of Duty. Um, you know, if, you, if you've ever heard of a game called Fortnite... You know, Fortnite is sort of at the top of the list of these sort of free-to-play games where people are actually playing the games for free, but the games are generating billions and billions of dollars in revenue because the gamers are spending money on on what are called skins. Um, think of a skin as very similar to if you want to drive like a nice car in real life, or you want to wear that new designer label. Um, skins are sort of ways to show status of your avatar in games. So it could be a really cool weapon. It could be a cool print on your costume. Um, You know skins can even be supported by by actual brands it could be for example the the new nike Air jordans i want my uh you know my avatar in my favorite game to walk around with those shoes Um, and kids will pay money for this kids and and adults will pay money
2: for their computer generated character to wear computer generated tennis shoes and they will pay actual real american
0: dollars you're you're 100 right and you know what what a lot of times that will happen is the uh you know the game the publishers themselves will make them limited edition. so you know it puts yourself in a situation then that supply demand mechanics kick in and people want to race to buy these skins because they want to be you know one of 100 people to wear you know the new you know air jordans that dropped when marshmallow the I dj first I'm very threw his familiar concert. with this
2: I I have a 19 year old son who on Thursdays he asks me to help him because we're going to try to buy supreme t-shirts. Now, these are actual t-shirts. Yep. Uh, you know, that you can actual people can wear. Uh, but this idea that, you know, you race to spend this money because Supreme has deliberately made them, you know, only on a limited run. And and, you know, I I was 19 once as well. Uh, so <laughs> I try to hide my eyes rolling uh, yep. as we as we try to plunk down fifty dollars for a T-shirt. But but that appeal is is there.
0: Definitely, you know, and, you know, the Const Supreme has been incredible as it relates to small batch manufacturing. And imagine if with that shirt that you buy, not only do you maybe have one of a thousand shirts, you could actually receive a QR code that could then allow your character in game to wear the same Supreme shirt. Um, and you're, I think you're really going to cost me money with yeah, that idea. <laughs> exactly right. Because he, so, he, he well plays Fortnite as well. Yeah, yes. yeah. So was, what
2: so what is what is Mythical doing in this space with these these skins and these virtual uh, items?
0: Yeah. So basically, what Mythical has realized is there's a multi-billion-dollar gray market where gamers, you know, will go and purchase skins, and they'll realize that supply-demand mechanics have kicked in. Other gamers would love to have access to those skins but there's no real direct way in a publisher supported publisher supported manner for the gamer to monetize that. So what ends up happening is the gamer will go and deal with like really shady, um, you know, brokering companies in Asia in order to like sell the password to their account or to use a third party to like drop the skin in game so that someone else can then pick it up. Um, it's a really horrific UI UX. And um, from Mythical's perspective, by the publishers not um, actually directly participating and supporting this market, they're actually losing out on billions of dollars of revenue. So uh, what Mythical wants to do is they want to use you know blockchain technology just in the sense of having an, an immune ledger, so to speak, um, and really sort of have the publishers start supporting this secondary market so that they can allow gamers uh, to trade skins with other gamers, actually monetize those initial bets. Um, and do it in such a way that's publisher supported, and obviously the publishers would get a piece um, of of every sort of skin that is sold. Um, They could
2: essentially sell it twice, yeah. Exactly. Or at least have a piece of the second sale. 100%, yeah.
0: yeah. And and what's really interesting about Mythical is not only have they developed the back-end infrastructure to sort of bring this publisher-supported secondary market to AAA-rated games, they themselves are also a AAA-rated game developer. So they've got their first game uh, coming out called Blankos. Um, should release uh, towards the end of this year. Uh, I think private I think beta is actually going to be in September and uh, think of, of Blanco's as like a Fortnite meets Roblox. Um, it's, it's really, really cool sort of vinyl toys that come to life and you can design uh, your own mini games and your own worlds. And they've got all these incredible artists, um, you know, creating these limited edition sort of Blankos skins, um, you know, and they, they want to create this very flourishing ecosystem and they want to use sort of the, the back end technology that, that, that they've created to power. For, uh, sort of the in-game primary and secondary market um, for Blancos, so um, it's it's really excited and exciting, and, and if it's done correctly. You really envision a world where you sort of bridge the gap between the physical world and the virtual world. And, uh, you know, I think if you speak to a lot of sort of VR enthusiasts, et cetera, um, and especially you see here how much time people are spending in their homes, you know, we could be in a situation where 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, um, your your digital representation of yourself is just as important as your physical. And if that kind of happens, you could see you know, mythical playing an interesting role in that, at least as it relates to the economy associated with that, that digital
2: Form. It's not hard to imagine already people's online presence is so critical to them, particularly the younger generation. Yep, You exactly. can see that expanding into, you know, actually having uh, accessories and fashion and whatnot, and there being that secondary market. Yep, exactly. Now, can you imagine your grandfather, Benny, pulled rocks out of the <laughs> ground and <laughs> sold them? <laughs> And that's how he made his fortune. Can you imagine explaining that to him?
0: No, I cannot. And uh, I don't think it would be an easy conversation. (laughs) Adam Strzok, founder
2: and managing partner at Strzok Capital in Santa Monica. We mentioned Dharaj Pandey of Nutanix during the interview. You can find Pandey's conversation with my reporter colleagues John Swartz of Dow Jones and Farhad Manju of the New York Times on my television show Press Here, available at PressHeartv.com. Just use the little search box at the top to find the keyword Nutanix with an X. Next week on Sand Hill Road, Jody Banzal, the creator of the company App Dynamics, you know how Pandey decided not to sell his company? Cisco, we just talked about that, and went forward with that IPO? Well, in a weird coincidence, Jody does the opposite. He sells App Dynamics to Cisco on the eve of his company's market debut. That interview next week on Sand Hill Road. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni.